from Asia Society Switzerland. This is State of Asia, a podcast on the world's most dynamic region. I'm your host, Nico Lochsinger. Today, I'm speaking with Leni Robredo, until recently the vice president of the Philippines. We have seen uh, what happened in the United States with the rise of Trump. Uh, in the Philippines, it was the Tel Ted Marcos. In Brazil, it was Bolsonaro. It, it's a problem that the whole world is facing. We talk about how disinformation tripped up her race for the presidency. The most targeted official was, was me. The wave of disinformation escalated. Almost 90% of the disinformation posts questioned my credibility. And about how she wants to create the largest group of volunteers and politically empowered citizens in the Philippines. We want people to feel that they are the most important part of governance. So hopefully after five years, you have a more empowered citizen. Welcome to the State of Asia. Leni Robredo was the 14th vice president of the Philippines, serving from 2016 to this year, 2022. During her term, she focused on poverty alleviation, education, health, nutrition and food security, rural development, women empowerment and housing and resettlement. Her office was also leading the response to the COVID pandemic. Before becoming vice president, she was a member of the House of Representatives in the Philippines for three years and a longtime human rights lawyer representing farmers, fisherfolk, laborers, informal settlers, indigenous peoples, women and children. As vice president, she was strongly critical of then-president Rodrigo Duterte's policies, including his famous war on drugs. In the Philippines, president and vice president are elected separately, a quite unique feature of the political system there. Leni Robredo ran for president as an independent in the election earlier this year, but lost to Ferdinand Bongbong Marcos. After her term as vice president ended, Robredo set up Anhat Buhai, an NGO which focuses on education, health, community engagement, disaster response, and rehabilitation. It aims to become the biggest network of volunteers in the entire country. Deni Robredo, we're honored to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been about five months since the presidential elections in which you as vice president went head to head with Ferdinand Marcos, who's also known as Bongbong Marcos, who now is the president of the Philippines. Can you talk about what the day immediately after the election was like for you? You know, it was the, the results of the elections was sort of expected already. Um, there have been surveys beforehand. But, you know, during the campaign, we were able to mobilize a lot of volunteers who invested themselves so much. Uh, there was so much passion. There was so much energy. So the results of the elections, you know, gave, gave us a lot of grief among our supporters. So the day after the elections, uh, my instinct was really to console, to console all our volunteers who were heartbroken because of the results of the elections. And what we did was immediately plan for a sort of a Thanksgiving event where they, they would be able to see me in person and we would be able to thank them personally for all the work that they did. Because, you know, even if the surveys were really racked against us, because of, of the energy during the campaign, a lot of very young people really hoped that the results of the elections would be in our favor. So um, it's it, not just the day after the elections, but until the very last day of my term as vice president, um, every day was sort of a grief counseling day. Um, that we, we really um, set aside for our supporters. You mentioned this role as grief counselor for, for your supporters. And of course, during the campaign, you built this huge following, this, this huge campaign. How's the mood amongst your supporters? Has, is the disappointment gone? Has it been translated into political action? 
you know, the, the Thanksgiving event happened, I think, five days, four, four or five days after the elections. I, I was very de- deliberate in announcing that we will be setting up Angat Pinas, or Angat Buhay program, um, because we intended it to be a platform where all our supporters would be able to channel their energies and their passion into more productive things. We have been very busy um, just so that their energies will be channeled to um, very productive things. Um, actually, the, the program that we're doing now was already what we were doing before at the office of the vice president. But the difference now from before is that before, it was just the office who was doing all these things for our communities. But right now, we have a huge army of volunteers. And um, you, you know, the, the challenge now is how to create a platform where all of them will be able to participate. As mentioned, Ferdinand Marcos Jr. was elected president this year with 59% of the votes. And to many observers outside of the Philippines, it came a bit as a surprise that the people of the Philippines chose another Marcos, because of course, Ferdinand Bongbong Marcos Jr. is the son of the autocrat Ferdinand Marcos, who exactly 50 years ago this year declared martial law in the country and didn't leave power until he was ousted in 1986. And you actually beat the younger Marcos six years ago in the race for the vice presidency. So can you talk about why you think this time he won? What has changed between six years ago and now that sort of turned the tides and made the Filipino people elect the son of the former autocrat? You know, six years ago when we ran ran head-to-head against each other, um, we already knew that they were setting up a huge disinformation machinery. But I think at that time... You know, it, it wasn't this huge yet. We never thought that it would affect the electorate as much as it did in the past election. But the years after 2016, um, it escalated to levels that were unprecedented. Um, so, so, you know, all the data is showing that this information has really skewed towards uh, Mr. Marcos. There are several uh, third-party fact-check organizations in the Philippines, and there have been analyses of how they influence the minds of our electorate. In fact, um, Verifiles, one of those third-party fact-check organizations, came up with a report that said of the of the hundreds of election-related posts on Facebook that they debunked in 2021 uh, that contained misleading and untrue information. 43% of them either promoted Mr. Marcos, who was at the time already aspiring for the presidency, or distorted facts about his family's ill-gotten wealth cases and the atrocities committed under the administration of his father, the late dictator Ferdinand Marcos Sr. And, and the rest of those are fake news mostly promoted then incumbent President Rodrigo Duterte and his daughter Sara. And, and you know for a fact that Sara Duterte ran as um, Mr. Marcos' uh, vice president. So it's like two um, disinformation mach- machineries um, merged together. It was so difficult for us to combat them. And, and the same report said that, um, in contrast, the most targeted official was, was me. Almost 90% of the disinformation posts still questioned my credibility, the credibility of my win. Um, so there was a lot of fake news after I won in 2016, but it escalated um, during the time of the campaign. That, that was the main difference. In 2016, they were just starting. And, um, you know, the local media was more influential then than it was during the 2022 um, elections. To which extent was it a factor that the Philippines are a very young country, meaning that a big part of the electorate doesn't even remember the time under under Marcos Sr.? Is there an aspect of just also forgetting the past a bit? I 
think it was many different things. It was forgetting, but mainly it was really uh, the attempt to revise history. And they have done a lot of work as far as this is concerned. They have convinced Filipinos that it was the late President Marcos who was victimized by the liberal elite and that um, the, the People Power Revolution, which happened in 1986, was, was really a farce in the sense that people were, were lured into believing and narratives which were not at all true. So people buy into that. And, and it is essentially because of you know, all the propaganda that they have been pushing. If you look at the election results, it was very apparent that people who had access to um, more information, people who, had, who were better educated, uh, did not vote for Marcos. But, but you know, that is all, only a small percentage of our entire population. And people buy into the propaganda because um, a lot of them really don't have access to a lot of information. Most of our people, especially from the rural areas, um, their, their source of news is Facebook. Their source of news is YouTube. Does 59% of the population who voted for Ferdinand Marcos Jr., they had certain expectations. There were reasons why they were voting for him. What is it that the Filipino electorate wants from its new president? What are their expectations? And do you think they will get what they want? Um, pe people really believe that uh, Bongbong Marcos was crucial in making sure that they will have a better life. Many of his supporters are overseas Filipino workers. And the narrative is that um, when he becomes president, um, life in the Philippines will become better. And people don't have to go outside the country to work. That has sort of raised the expectations of people that life will be better when he becomes president. There's a lot of hardships, um, poverty um, in our midst. And people cling to any hope they can see. And they see that in, in Mr. Marcos. You had already mentioned disinformation as a primary reason you know, that the race turned out the way it turned out, and more generally as a huge factor in the political life of the Philippines. And I'm quoting here a reporter of a large Filipino news network who recently said, fake news has become so believable that the public think it's true. It's become totally pervasive in society. And I think for you know our listeners here in, in Switzerland, in Europe, it may be hard to, to comprehend the level of disinformation and the pervasiveness of disinformation. So I was wondering whether you could give us an example from the campaign that you felt particularly striking in terms of disinformation. Most of the disinformation are used on social media. Because, um, you know, Filipinos are glued to social media platforms. Um, I, I think we're one of the most rabid users of social media. So most of the, most of the information that Filipinos get is really either from Facebook or um, YouTube and now TikTok. Th these were the channels being used by um, the, the machineries, the propaganda machineries. Our sense is that most of the uh, videos in their favor tried to humanize them. They portrayed the Marcoses as uh, good people. They portrayed them as victims of, as I said earlier, the liberal elites. They were made to believe that the, the, the elder Marcos years were the golden years in Philippine history. And people buy into that. But, but if you look at the data, that, that is not true at all. There's been a lot of talk about the atrocities committed during the dictatorship under the reign of his father. But, but, but you know, um, they sort of made people believe that they are not true. As far as I was concerned, I was one of the most, most victimized of all the politicians because I was running against him. 
um, they conjured a lot of fake information about me, like I was a member of the Communist Party of the Philippines, which is not true at all. You know that I I did not do anything during my reign as vice president, which is not true at all. I was a corrupt politician that I, you know, he lost during the 2016 elections because I did, I tampered with with, with election results, um, many other things, and people buy into that. And, and, you know, it was so difficult for us to combat this. You know, a lot of false information about me was already coming out, but um, I, I told my staff at the office of the vice president then that, let us mi- not mind the stories because let us not dignify the lies. But but looking back, that sort of reaction, it, it, it was not the best reaction that we should have done. Every fake news, you know, if not combated, uh, becomes the truth. And that is exactly what happened during the past six years. When we tried debunking all the fake information, it seemed like it was too late already because uh, people's minds were already made up. It seems to me that while obviously this information is a global phenomenon, it's something that affects the Philippines in a particularly strong way. And I was wondering whether you had any thoughts on why that is. There's a lot of problems regarding education. In fact, I've been pushing for government to declare an, an education crisis already. If we look at the data that's here, uh, most of the people who buy into the who buy into the narrative are, are those who do not have a lot of access to information. I, I also think that um, we were not able to inculcate in our curriculum um, the lessons from our past. So we keep on repeating them. A lot of Filipinos, especially the young ones, do not anymore know um, what, what brought about the People Power Revolution, uh, what the Marcoses did to, to our country. Do not know anymore the lessons from all the things that have gone through. You obviously, during your campaign for the presidency, I assume you expected that there would be disinformation targeted at you, and, and, and I assume you, you prepared for that. How do you deal with this as a candidate? And how did you try to counter sort of this torrent of disinformation that was, was targeted at you? So we tried. We tried to combat them. Uh, we also we, we tried debunking all the lies already. But you know how Facebook works. Um, it works on algorithms. Even if we were fact-checking all the lies that they have been saying, our fact-checking was only limited to our own echo chamber, you know, because of, of how, how social media platforms work. So we, we felt that we were a failure in uh, being able to reach out to people who have been made to believe the lies that they have been propagating. So with all the debunking that we were doing, we were only able to reach a a handful of people. I'm interested in also talking to you about not just how you responded or tried to respond to the disinformation as a candidate and as a politician, but how you think societies, governments should respond, right? This is, again, it's a pervasive problem. It's not just limited to the Philippines. Many countries in the region and across the world are dealing with this. How should governments ideally respond to disinformation? There's a group that's been pushing for the different parliaments around the world to pass legislation that will make the social media platforms accountable. 
Um, it's been a long fight already. Uh, they have started the fight, I think, um, three, four years ago. The best chance that we have is that the EU is expected to pass one already um, early next year. So um, the hope is that uh, when the EU passes um, that legislation, many other governments will follow. You know, there's there's a study by the European Policy Center that... Um, more or less states that the appeal of this information for illiberal politicians is that it has become a convenient tool for extremist discourse. Um, we have seen uh, what happened in the United States with the rise of Trump uh, in the Philippines. It was Duterte and Marcos. In Brazil, it was Bolsonaro and other populist politicians. So it's, it, it's a problem that the whole world is, is facing. Currently, this information has only worked to influence domestic matters in different countries. We have yet to see it can influence foreign policy. But, you know, if more democratic governments fall, we may see a world where countries isolate themselves from the, the international arena. Uh, again, we have seen this in the U.S. During the presidency of Donald Trump, um, there, were, there were a lot of policies focused on what was popular for, for their own citizens without considering the larger international implication. It should really be a fight um, of everyone. Again, my hope is that um, legislation will already be passed so that um, social media platforms are made accountable. During your time as vice president, you served, of course, with then-president Rodrigo Duterte. But, and that's a really unique feature of the political systems in the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte and you, you didn't run together on the same platform. You belong to different political uh, parties. And during your times in office, you disagreed on, on quite a few many things. And, and, and we can get into those. But I, I'm wondering, because I think people have this idea of you know a president and a vice president sort of working hand in hand. How does this work in the Philippines? Our constitution states that uh, the president may appoint the vice president to a cabinet post. But in my case, it was different. I, you know, after we won, after the elections of 2016, I wasn't given access to the president at all. I planned on offering my help and my cooperation in the administration, but I wasn't given access to him. We met uh, when we took office already. I think a week after we took office, we met at a military gathering. And that sort of broke the ice. And because of that, he offered me the housing portfolio. That meant I was attending cabinet meetings already. Uh, that was also the height of the drug war, where a lot of Filipinos were being killed. Um, I was very vocal about my opposition. That was the reason why I was booted out of, of my housing portfolio, I think five months after I was appointed. Because, because of my being very vocal about my opposition on the drug war. So um, I, I basically started a anti, an anti-poverty program. Um, it's, it's the same thing that we're doing now. So in the six years that I was vice president, we were doing a lot of programs on poverty alleviation, but uh, we were getting resources from the private sector. So um, even if I was not anymore a member of the cabinet, and I was not, you know, I was not a welcome part of the administration, I was not involved in a lot of things. We were still able to do our part in making sure that um, my six years as vice president would not be put to waste. The Philippines, with around 110 million people, is Southeast Asia's second most populous country. And it's a middle power 
with a key role within ASEAN and at the forefront of many dynamics that will shape the future of the Asia-Pacific region. It has long-standing relationships with both the East and the West and lies at the heart of supply chain and shipping route. It's also a young country with over two-thirds of the population being under 40. And what struck me is that a few years ago, the country was the only Asian nation to crack the top 10 in the Gender Equality Index of the World Economic Forum, coming in at number eight. The next Southeast Asian country on the list, Singapore, came in at 67. How do you explain that? What has the Philippines done in the past um, that has made it so successful in terms of gender equality? That seems quite a remarkable achievement. Um, it is. And we are very proud of it. We have a lot of women politicians in power. Um, the women's sector has long been a very, very strong, very active advocate of a lot of issues. Um, so I, I, I feel that that sort of created a pressure point as far as passing legislation is concerned. Uh, we have a lot of aspirations still, but we are better off than most. And I think to a very large extent that, that is because um, in the Philippines, women have a voice. And I think essentially um, our culture is that women really is uh, listened to. So it, it has created a lot of pressure on um, policy, policy making, um, electing women in power. Um, the, the strongest organizations, civic organizations that we have are led by women. We have a lot of businesses. Uh, where CEOs are women, um, a lot of women um, holding holding leadership positions, and that's historical. Uh, it's not just a product of the current political and social uh, milieu, but but it's really historical. Um, throughout history, we've had a lot of very very strong women leaders, and um, it has improved over time with the passage of more legislations that really promote gender equality. The current Philippine president, uh, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., has been saying that he wants the Philippines to become a bit closer to the United States against politically. Of course, his predecessor, uh, Rodrigo Duterte, at some point tried to create closer ties to China. And, and, and generally, the Philippines as a Southeast Asian middle power is, of course, very much caught in this ongoing conflict between the US and China. How do you see your country positioning within that conflict? What's a good position for the Philippines to be in, in the region and in this great power conflict that is going on? You know, my sense is that the, the best thing that the new administration has to do now is to really rehabilitate um, our damaged ties with our traditional allies, but at the same time dealing with aggressive actions from China. Uh, tensions between the Philippines and China remain high, with China still not recognizing the arbitral tribunal ruling, which we, which we had in 2016. As recent as two months ago, Chinese militia vessels have again been spotted in the, you know, in the West Philippine Sea, and the Philippine government has yet to assert its victory in the arbitral tribunal case. Um, many of our security partners, like, like of course the US, Japan, Canada, and Australia, have sought to uphold the, our arbitral ruling through statements of support for the Philippines and calls for China to abide by the 2016 ruling. And, you know, the U.S., um, among others, also routinely conducts freedom of navigation operations to demonstrate that China's nine-dash line claims is contrary to the convention and without lawful effect to the extent that they, they exceed the geographic and substantive limits of China's maritime entitlement. So we hope that the government will actively uphold our victory in the 2016 arbitral ruling by engaging like-minded and allied countries. Uh, we can have joint activities with parties uh, conducting freedom of navigation operations in international waters in the South China Sea 
and intensify international cooperation in areas such as maritime scientific research, marine research, rescue operations. Um, if, if, if you ask me, the one thing that, that went better um, during the last six years was our improved relations with many ASEAN countries. But that is not to sacrifice our relations already with our traditional ally. Um, we have been pushing for a more independent foreign policy. But, you know, what, what we discovered over the last six years is th- there's a lot of interpretation of what independent foreign policy means. Who from the region are the Philippines' closest partners? Which are the countries within Asia that the Philippines have a good relationship with and, and that you think it's worth building out ties as the Philippines develops uh, its, its foreign policy? The Philippines' natural partner um, over the course of our history is Japan. We have been dealing with Japan, not, not just in areas of national security, but also in trade. But, you know, um, we have a lot of commonalities with countries like Indonesia, Malaysia. And I think towards not, not just trade, but also regional security, we have to strengthen our relationships with them. Uh, I feel that we have a good enough relationship with them right now. It, it would be to our advantage if we continue to strengthen those relationships. Um, the president just visited Indonesia and Singapore. And basically, um, that, that, that is a source of hope for us that relations with them will continue to be strengthened over the years. Speaking of relationships with uh, the neighboring countries, with other Southeast Asian countries, the Philippines, of course, is a member of ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. And ASEAN has a bit of a reputation in the West as being a weak organization that can't get its act together, you know, that cannot forcefully act against countries like Myanmar, um, where obviously there's a, there's a military dictatorship going on. I'm curious to hear your view on ASEAN. You know, ASEAN has the capacity to become a very important player in the world stage. If it decides to move as a block, um, it can have as much influence as the European Union if it decides to use a similar model. And currently, it is moving in the right direction. Of course, we are not satisfied with how it has um, asserted itself in the world stage because, again, we could do better. But I feel that Right now, we are moving. ASEAN has been moving in the right direction. Um, ASEAN integration is in full swing, and if successful, it could it could be the instrument towards the the advantages that we have been hoping for. For example, we have been hoping for easier movement for ASEAN citizens. It will bring about cheaper goods and services because ASEAN integration will lead to lower tra- tariffs on certain goods among member countries. Tariffs have already been lowered to five percent from eighteen percent. So. So we're, we're going towards that already. Um, this has opened up markets for domestic producers and spur economic growth. Uh, we wish for more job opportunities because of ASEAN integration for ASEAN citizens. Um, hopefully, the ASEAN integration will provide more opportunities for workers in member countries. Hopefully, this will spur the growth of technical vocational education and training for skills related to green jobs. Hopefully, also, this will bring in technology in the member states and produce more skilled labor, which hopefully in turn will allow our citizens to undertake more high-paying jobs. Um, education for our citizens would be enhanced um, because of ASEAN integration. Uh, the National University in Singapore offers scholarships for ASEAN countries for graduate coursework. So these are only a few of the examples of uh, quality international support for, for Filipino students. So hopefully, hopefully the we're, we're on the right track now. Hopefully, there will be no bumps anymore so that the much-desired um, ASEAN integration will finally come to fruition. After uh, you left the office of the vice president 
you started an NGO, Angat Buhai, which works on similar goals you set for yourself as vice president, such as poverty alleviation, education, rural development, women empowerment, and many other things. This is obviously a very ambitious undertaking. Can you talk about what your vision for the organization is? If you look into the future five years from now, where would you like the organization to be? What would you like to have achieved by this point? When we started Angat Buhay, Angat Buhay was already a program of the office of the vice president. So when we did Angat Buhay, the main purpose really was poverty alleviation. During the six years of Angat Buhay under the office of the vice president, we were mainly doing community work. It's education, health, rural development, livelihood, women empowerment in the most depressed communities in the entire country. But when I lost during the elections and people who were just so passionate and so energetic um, during the campaign, we wanted to have a platform where their energies will not be put to waste. So we thought of continuing with Angat Buhay, this time uh, being very conscious to make it a platform where our volunteers uh, will be able to participate. Because when it was still a program of the office of the vice president, the main target only was poverty alleviation. But right now, it's not just poverty alleviation, but also as important as it being the platform where a lot of private individuals and organizations can participate in. The past three months after the elections, we are very um, hopeful about it. Um, a lot of many different groups, even international organizations, uh, have already pledged their support. Uh, we hope that after five years, people, uh, you know, the spirit, spirit of volunteerism will be as energetic as it was or even more energetic than it was during the campaign. And hopefully this energy will be translated to putting in political pressure and demanding from government accountability, transparency, uh, inclusiveness. Uh, because that's just the kind of governance that we have offered during the campaign. And we feel that if, if we are able to sustain community engagement, then we will have an electorate that's more demanding of government. Because right now, the sense is that we just accept what, what is given to us. And that is because of this information. But to combat it, we want people to feel that um, they are the most important part of governance and they have to demand accountability. So hopefully after five years, you have a more empowered citizen. Lenny Robredo, thank you very much for having joined us on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Nico. Thank you. That was Lenny Robredo, the former vice president of the Philippines and current leader of Anhat Buhai. Lenny will be in Zurich this November 9 and 10 at the inaugural State of Asia Conference organized by Asia Society Switzerland. Asia is shaping the big issues of our time. The State of Asia Conference will give you an overview of current and future developments in Asia, bringing together a selection of our most trusted experts from around the globe, including, besides Lenny Robredo, Tomohiko Taniguchi, who was special advisor to Japan's longest-serving prime minister, the late Shinzo Abe. C. Raja Mohan, one of India's leading foreign policy thinkers. James Crabtree, executive director of the International Institute for Strategic Studies in Singapore. Agatha Kratz, who has research on EU-China relations at Rhodium Group. And Sergio Ermotti, the chairman at Swiss Re. For a complete list of speakers, several of whom have already featured on earlier episodes of this podcast, visit our website at asiasociety.com. 
www.asiaconsultancy.org Switzerland and click on the State of Asia banner. This is also where you can request tickets to the conference and find information on the many other activities of Asia Society Switzerland. To stay up to date, be sure to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. All links are in the show notes. If you like this show, please subscribe and consider leaving a rating or review. It really helps other people find the show. State of Asia is produced by Remco Tanis. Additional research by Remco Tanis. And editing, you guessed it, is also by Remco Tanis. Yes, we are a small organization, but we have big plans. If you want to support our work, please consider becoming a member. Information is also in the show notes. Thank you very much. My name is Nico Luchsinger. Till next time.